Welcome to the Chi Alpha at UNC Chapel Hill podcast. This podcast is designed to help you grow through our three foundations, devoted disciples, deep friendships, and deliberate servants. We hope you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. All right, well, we are glad you guys are, you guys are out tonight. Um, we're going to wrap up XA Live and our, our three-week series on XADNA tonight. Previously, we've talked about uh, devoted disciples, what that means to be followers and learners. We talked about last week, we talked about deep friendships. And this week, we're going to talk about deliberate servants, what it means to be a deliberate servant as a follower of Jesus. If you missed last week, it's on the podcast. You can find that on iTunes and uh, Spotify, UNC Chi Alpha. You can also go to the website, xa-unc.com. And you can find all the, the podcasts there now. It's approaching about 50 that are there. When you have more time, when you're not writing three papers, or whatever the case may be, uh, we know your time's kind of ebb and flow, and we want to provide that to you. Um, last week, we had one of our alum come back and share along with Parker about their friendship that came to be within Chi Alpha while they were here at Carolina. And it's really powerful stuff, really gritty, human, real stuff that, that God blessed, and uh, those two now will be lifelong friends as a result. Now, the last couple of weeks have really been largely about us, right? About us following Jesus and us having deep friendships. But now we're going to look a little bit outwardly tonight. And the way we're going to do that tonight is a little bit different. I'm only going to talk to you for about 10 minutes. And those of you that know me, be quiet. You know I can do it in 10 minutes, maybe. Um, but then uh, Chris Bargo is here with us tonight. Chris is, is not only an alum of uh, UNC, he's an alum of Chi Alpha, and how many years were you on staff with Chi Alpha? Five, right? Yeah, five years. He came back for five years to work with Chi Alpha here at UNC as well. Uh, he and Lucy, his wife, are just amazing, uh, amazing folks. You're going to hear from Chris in just a few minutes. And uh, he's going to talk about what it's like to, to take your faith and match it to serving other people. But before he comes up, I just want to share with you a few things to get you set up for that. We're headed into Easter week starting on Sunday, what they call the Passion Week. Some of you are already preparing yourselves for that through Lent. Uh, It's really one of the biggest times on the Christian calendar of the Passion Week, beginning with Palm Sunday. Uh, When you look back at the time that that overlays with in the Bible, when Jesus is about to be arrested and he's about to be crucified and he has that last meal with his disciples, you know, right before this, they're actually arguing over, over title and position and who's going to be the greatest because they sense and know, or at least they think they know, that Jesus is about to bring his kingdom to bear. They just don't know what it's really going to look like. So they think, oh, there's going to be spots for us, right? We're going to be like the ambassador or the chief of staff or whatever category you can come up with. They're envisioning an earthly ruler. Jesus is about to bring something very different. And his response it's not to start talking, about them, talking to them about hierarchies, but rather, I don't know if you remember what he does, he strips himself of his outer garment and he bows down before them to do the one thing that nobody in the room wants to do, which is wash their feet, which is something that they would always do at those times prior to eating. Why? Because you're wearing open-toe sandals and you're walking in dirty roads. It also includes animal waste and all kinds of things, and so your feet needed to be clean. But it was a job that only the lowest of the servants in the, any particular house would do. In fact, a lot of Jewish servants would just stay away from it altogether. Like, I'm not doing that. I, that's, that is below me. 
and I'm not going to do that. But here's the king of the universe about to usher in his kingdom while they're bickering about who's going to get what position and who's going to be higher than the other. And he takes the form of the lowest servant that there is and he washes it <coughs> as an example and a model to them and the way that they should behave. What does that mean for us? Well, the first thing, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1-8. through 8. We're going to see it here. The first thing is this. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And it goes on there uh, in verses 5 on through, uh, through 8 to describe how Jesus has humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. First thing we've got to do is we've got to look outside ourselves. It's not a very common thing to do in our culture today. It's not a common thing to do as a university student, if we're honest. Why are you at Carolina? Well, I'm here to get my degree. I'm here to become a Tar Heel. It's all about me becoming and me moving to the next stage of my life. And I understand that, and that's normal. But he's challenging them, and he's challenging us to look outside ourselves. And the first thing that requires is we've got to be humble. He humbled himself. He's asking us to humble ourselves. To look not only to your needs, but the needs of others. Faith is not only personal and private, guys. It is compassionate and shareable. We live in a time where you're told it's fine if you believe what you believe and therefore it's personal and private, but people don't want you to let it get outside that box. But if you have the hope and light of the world inside your heart, how in the world can you not at least want to share it? So the first thing is you've got to look outside yourself into the needs of others. The next challenge I want to give you comes from James chapter 2. Where we're being challenged to live as we've been shown to live. And James, if you read James, James, he's a really pretty blunt, very straightforward way of approaching uh, following Jesus. And he says this in chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now some people want to argue over this, these verses here and say, well, see, you're saved by you know, the things you do. Other people say, no, I'm saved by the grace of God and the forgiveness of Jesus, and my sins are forgiven for Him, so it's by faith. It is by faith. But what James is saying here, um, although it's not by works that were made right or saved by God, but here's the trick. If you believe wholly and wholeheartedly in Jesus, then there has to be a natural outflow in your life, right? There have to be actionable things that you do with it and not just hoard it for yourself. And James is pointing that out. If you see someone in need and do nothing about it, where is your faith there? Put it into practice as you've been shown. Now, some of you are, are brand new and, and you haven't. And with COVID, too, we've, a lot of things have been shut down for the last couple of years. Um, we've missed out on some of the things that we actively do on our campus and beyond to serve. It's why uh, typically we help first years move in. It's one of the things we do. We go find first years that need help moving in. 
and we help them move in. It's why we set up hydration stations on Halloween night. And we don't tackle people anymore, Chris. First year I got here, the year before, um, Chris was out working a safety patrol on Halloween night, and the cops actually told him to tackle somebody, and he did. He was very disappointed the next year, though, when they didn't let him tackle anybody the next year. So We set up hydration stations to keep people hydrated on Halloween night for obvious reasons, just as a way to tell them that we value them and we care for them. It's why we check on each other every day. It's why we give up our weekend to help hurricane victims and travel near and far for spring break, helping those in need from inner city Atlanta and San Francisco to Bamako, Mali, to Pimbo, East Africa, and many other places that we are normally in during our our spring bakes. Why? Because Jesus compels us to do by His example and His commands. So yeah, this includes you. It includes me. Oh, you're getting some of the pictures there? This won't go over the podcast, but uh, this is out in Zanzibar right, well, right when COVID hit. Actually, we flew back from that during COVID. Uh, Istanbul, Turkey, inner city Atlanta, there on the bottom of the screen. So this does include you. How do you know that? Let's take a look at what Ephesians chapter 2 has to say. One of my favorite uh, verses, 10 in particular, here where it says this, For by, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. This goes hand in glove, by the way, with the verses we just read out of James. So that no one may boast. But here's the thing, verse 10. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Before you ever came to Carolina, before you were ever set foot on the planet, God had ordained and prepared things for you to do and be on this earth. At least that was His intention for you if you're willing to walk in them. We're not just here to exist and to get through and to get by and just for ourselves, but to look to the needs of others and to walk in the good works therein that God has put before us. So before I bring Chris up, we're going to wrap up with one more here. What does that look like? What does it look like? There's a set of verses in Matthew chapter 25 that are pretty well known. You may have heard them if you haven't read them. And um, where Jesus is, it's it's making it pretty plain here uh, what it's going to be like if we don't serve and then we stand before God one day. Matthew 25 verses 34 through 40. Come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So when we serve others, it's honoring to God. It's honoring to His sacrifice and what He's already done for us to His character, to His nature. It's honoring of the people He loves. You and me, everybody, everyone. To serve is one of the greatest expressions of God in you that can come out. This is your purpose. 
This is your mission. And so God propels us forward, commands us and drives us to love and meet the needs of those around us and not just consume faith for ourselves as if we just bought something and we own it. If you own your faith, share it away. I'm going to ask Chris to come up. And uh, I've got a few questions prepared for him. As you guys have heard tonight, Chris has got a great passion for the Lord. Um, There was a stretch of several years here uh, when he was on staff and after you left that when we would do senior night and seniors would say, tell us about their experience in Chi Alpha and how they came into Chi Alpha. And it would be like three quarters of them would say, well, I met this guy, Chris Bargo. I met Chris in the pit one day. I met Chris here. And he, he just, I just had to come because of his love for the Lord. And uh, Chris, I want to say thank you for all that you have poured in here for sure because it has made a, a difference in people's lives. I'm going to ask Chris just, I got like three questions for him. I promised him I wouldn't change up on him. First one is this, how has your faith informed or motivated you to serve others? Um, I think that serving people, you can get a motive, a motivation to serve people because it is somewhat fulfilling and enjoyable when you actually do it. You know, when you help somebody, it does give you a sense of being lifted up and that can be motivating. And so there are people who don't have faith that still have the motivation. But the problem is that the, the, the motivation, it's good up to a limit. It's like if the motivation is basically, you know, you've got a need, a personal need. I need to feel uplifted, and serving people helps me feel uplifted. Then serving people, it's like you've got an itch, you scratch the itch, you're kind of done. You know, it becomes something that you do when you're feeling it. You do it with your extra time, and um, you do it when it's convenient for you to do it. And it's not bad to do it. You know, when you help people, it helps people. The, the problem is that it only works up to a limit, and it doesn't work beyond that. So the kind of servanthood that is going to radically change something in someone's life that's going to cost something for you, if you don't have something more than just uh, a stimuli, you know, it makes me feel good, so I do it. If you don't have something more than that, then it's never going to be enough to get, for you to do something truly radical in serving other people. So my faith is the only way that I personally get that, you know, and what happens is I see myself, you know, Paul wrote so much of the Bible and others in the Bible, they say, I'm a bond slave of Christ, you know, and I'm a bond servant. I'm a bond slave. You know, it's an act of obedience of saying, you are so much greater than me and I am it, I'm literally, it's an honor to call myself a bond slave. It's a privilege to call myself that to you. You're awesome. You're that great. I'll do anything that you want me to do. I'm willing to do it. You know, bond slave, in our context, that sounds pretty degrading. But to be a bond slave of Jesus, it's an honor. And it's something that, that my faith leads me to like wear it proudly. And to say, this is something that God expects of me, and I don't really take this as an option. It's something I'm going to do as an act of obedience. You know, for me, like Joe was just saying, it's like faith isn't just about consuming something, but it it's, goes past just consuming faith, consuming Jesus, to actually being what the Bible calls a living sacrifice. So you're actually 
taking the materials, the raw materials of your life and offering them to God and obeying him and saying, you know, this is what I'm going to invest the raw materials of my life, my flesh, my energy, my time into obeying you. And it's going to be fish and it's going to be loaves and you can multiply it and feed thousands of people and do much greater things. So that my faith is the only place that I get that, you know, if it wasn't for that, then I wouldn't, you know, do anything really radical. I would do things if they really served my interest. I would do things if they were convenient for me. I would do things if they made me feel a little bit. It's the same reason people take drugs. You just got to realize it's okay, it's good to help people, but it's not enough to do something truly radical as far as serving people goes. You need a radical underpinning and faith in order to do that. So that is, um, you, you know, so it helps me to say, hey, look, the way that the world measures greatness and the way that God measures greatness, these are radically different things. And just to take a little examination of them can be pretty helpful in helping us get to the heart of where we want to go and where we need to go. And so what does the world actually value? Just, you know, one, one observation of the world is that the world, it's, what it's doing, it doesn't work. The world, you know, accomplishment and achievement in world standards, it's like, you know, you climb a ladder, you excel, you achieve, you accomplish something, and then you're just at a new base. And from there, it's like a rat race. What's the next ladder? I'm going to climb that ladder, and then I'm going to be at the bottom again. There's never a satisfaction. There's never a true fulfillment. There's, there's never... Um, there's never like an apex that you actually reach. It's like a rat race. And people go their whole lives sort of playing this game. And I don't think it's working. I, you know, I think about some of the most accomplished, successful people in history um, or modern history, whatever. You know, they are unhappy and depressed throughout their lives. I was just reading the Charles uh, Schultz who did Charlie Brown. You know, he gave all of us a great gift at Charlie Brown and all those cartoons and Charlie, it's just great stuff, but, um, but he was depressed. You know, a lot of artists who give us great art are, are depressed. Um, there are a lot of, you know, investment bankers and hedge fund managers who, you know, with whatever time they can scrounge together at the end of their week, just use it to do cocaine. So what the world's standard success, what the world sort of looks at as, this is achievement, this is what it's about, this is accomplishment, this is excellence, it doesn't work. It's just obvious to me it doesn't work. Okay, that's one observation. The world esteems power. The world esteems wealth. The world esteems ability. It esteems your talents, you know, achievements. I think one of the hottest words out there right now, or the hottest phrases or terms out there, is social media influencer. And I just feel like everybody wants to be that. You know, the, the ability to send a, fire off a tweet or something and then have, like, millions of people reading it and responding to it. And you can, like, move masses of people, create content that people devour and love, you know, and be, you know, um, be viral or whatever they call it when you're trending and stuff like that. This is, this is considered, like, a major account. These, this is, like, a strata of people that I think people look at like, oh, that's, that would be amazing. You know, that's a real accomplishment. But that's what the world esteems, um, appeal, persuasiveness. Now, this stuff is at a total and utter contradiction with what Jesus, what God esteems. Jesus said, if you'd enter the kingdom of heaven, you must become like, like a little child. And a little child, that's not influence. That's not ability. That's not achievement. 
That's not um, power. You know, that is innocence. That is naivety. That is, you know, a lot of problems. Children have a lot of problems in case you didn't know. You know, they're problematic. I don't know if you realize that. You wouldn't want them driving all the cars on the road or running society. They have problems. Okay, these are people with problems, all right? Take my word for it. Okay, I have five children, just so you know. Um, So, contrast, so, um, Jesus said, you may know the story of the widow's mite. It's one old woman. She puts in like a penny in the coffers of the temple, the offering, the people in front of her and behind her, they're like raining their silver and gold into these coffers. But Jesus says about this woman that she's put in more than all of them. So you can see from that that a little bit of faith goes a long way in the spiritual. It affects the natural, but it's actually more substantive than great wealth. And this is something that can only be experienced supernaturally through faith. It's not a natural thing, but this is one of the ways God sees greatness. The widow's might, she's an exemplary from the Bible is what I'm saying. You know, she's not one of these power, wealth, influence, achievement. Okay, uh, Jesus said the greatest will be, the greatest of you will be the servant of all. He said it is better to give than to receive. Uh, and Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit, these are the zeros and the nobodies of the world. These people, they don't have a message. They don't have talent. They don't have influence, and the historians will not write their names in the history books. You know, these are the masses of people that the world simply throws away and forgets. But Jesus says, blessed are they because of the future that they have in heaven. And so, you know, these, what I'm wanting to do is just to contrast how different the world's vision of greatness is from God's vision of greatness. Um, The world exalts self-actualization, finding your true self, expressing your true self. The cultural moment that we're living in, if you inhibit somebody from manifesting their sense of identity, that's that's like a cardinal sin. This is actually something that you dare not do. But Jesus said, you must deny yourself and follow me. You must take up your cross and follow me. So I'm pointing out that what Jesus is saying is so opposite of what the world is saying. When the world, it's basically promoting this world in which we're all sort of little bubbles, and ultimately we're all kind of about ourselves. but we try to help each other out where we can, when we can. And we try to establish systems that make it easier to help each other out. That's, that actually sounds kind of like hell to me. You know, I don't want my life to be a self-absorbed life. You know, I actually want to be connected to people. Like, I want to forget about myself. I would rather, you know, wake up and go through my day and forget to even think about myself. Thinking about yourself can be depressing. But this is, this is the uh, reality that God's indicating for us to actually embrace and live in. And if we do, and we live by faith and by obedience and by understanding that smallness is greatness, not influence, not voice, not attractiveness, not appeal, not power, not wealth, not those things, but smallness, being truly small and being humble, that's great. If we can, even if we don't get it, if we obey and say, you know, I don't get it and it doesn't feel right, but Lord, I do believe you, so I'm willing to totally embrace it, then that right there opens up a major door in your life for God to move. That makes you like the clay in his hands, you know. That, 
God can, at that point, you really are offering yourself as raw materials for him to do anything wonderful with. And that's what we have to do. It doesn't have to make sense. And I'll tell you what, it will make sense. It really will. Um, But even if it doesn't, I think it's more important to obey and to have faith. And I hope that makes some sense. I would just say that these two opposite worldviews, you know, God and the world. I mean, the Bible says friendship with the world is enmity with God. There's this saying, you know, it's like the political right and left. It's always this fight. Who's occupying the right side of history? God and the world are on opposite sides of history. They stand on opposite sides of history. Now, what I think is where this touches down with serving is if you're not a, if you don't go with God's vision of greatness and God's vision of humility and going low is going high and being small is being great, then all you're going to have to give are these leftovers, and it's going to be kind of on the peripheral of your life. Your life is going to basically be self-absorbed. And it's not going to work. Chris, what are some ways that, that um, you and Lucy have found to serve as a follower of Jesus? Okay, so family has been a big one. Like I said, we've got five kids. Um, we have three uh, of our own natural children. We have two foster kids who are 13 and 15. Family has been like, you know, it's like you're waiting on these children hand and foot. You know, they do ridiculous and... and um, backwards things it's not like waiting on some sultan or something it's like it's not so glamorous you know you're um when malachi started waking up before 6 a.m guess who had to start waking up before 6 a.m with him you know somebody's got to do it because he's not just going to be like wandering around downstairs so like family has been a big way um that we have found to serve and there's this kind of interesting study that happened where basically you know Monks, they, they give up the life of the world, and they go cloister themselves in monasteries and isolated places, and they kind of get, they're in the world, but they're not in the world, you know? And it, it, does, it has a major impact, obviously, on somebody who does that. This study, they found that people who start a family and have children have the same phenomena in their brain happen as these monks who cloister themselves in monasteries. Basically, it has the same... Uh, effect on you. so when you start a family in other words there's a part of your brain that like shuts off to the world and shuts off to everything that once like drove and motivated how you lived and that makes a lot of sense from the standpoint of having um, kids because you know that suddenly you start really serving them and kind of living for them in a lot of ways you know living so that they can you know you you wait on them hand and foot you uh, premeditate all of their needs you know your life like you have a baby like your life revolves around your children you know it has to <clears throat> it doesn't mean that you worship them and idolize them that's not what i'm saying but like practically speaking they have a lot of needs and especially if you want them to be like well-developed well-adjusted um, adults one day you really were wanting to invest in them and that's pretty interesting but you know last time i was here at chi alpha it it's I felt like God started really unfolding covenant to me because not everybody's going to have a family. But even if you don't have a family, which is a radical way to serve because obviously it absorbs your whole life and your life revolves around it, some people don't have it. Some people are never going to have families. But family is actually just one form of covenant. There are many other forms of covenant. And this strikes me as very important, actually. The Bible reveals God as a covenantal being. The Bible reveals us as covenantal beings. What happens in a covenant is you become the lesser party 
to a greater party. And you give up, you lose a lot of rights in a covenant. And covenant's not something that is, that is um, kind of practiced today the way that it has been practiced in like centuries past, except it happens naturally, like with family it happens. And marriage is very much a covenant. And when you become married, you literally give up like a lot of your rights. You know, you lose a lot of rights under the law. When you get married. But what happens in a covenant is you actually do become small. You give up a lot of rights, but you become sort of kind of irrevocably um, binded and bounded to this other party. And I think that this is really, this is what we're meant to be. If you read the Bible, it's clear. We're meant to be in covenant with each other and we're meant to be in covenant with God. And the idea that we're, that we would live life where we're not in covenant is foreign to the Bible, totally foreign. And, um, I think that we are all kind of in a desert wasteland in our lives to some extent in our culture in the modern world because we are so individualistic and we have ceased to practice covenant on a broad level, if that makes sense. But covenant is an environment where you develop your, where you develop your character and where you develop forbearance and where you develop servanthood and where you develop love. And it's an environment in which you don't have a choice. Now, there, there is a choice to enter a covenant. Nobody can make you enter a covenant. But once you enter the covenant, there's no going back. So it's a choice to get in, but once you're in, you don't leave. It's not this casual, I'm going to pop in, I'm going to pop out. You know, here in our world, our commitments, they can be very, very casual. And if it's working for me, I'll do it. I'll, I will retain the right to pop in, to pop out if I need to. But a covenant's not like that. And so I think we all need to grasp this so that we can actually get in covenants. You don't want to get in the wrong covenants. You don't just want to get into any covenant. But as a human being who is made in the image of a covenant, of a covenantal being, God, you need to be in these. And if you're in these covenants, if you're in a covenant, then it is, it's like being refined by fire. It's like being uh, molded. It's, a very, it's very intense. It can be painful. You know, life isn't, there's no easy button for life. And what is the end result of all this is that you get really changed and your love and character and forbearance and all these things that are so crucial for being a well-adjusted, well-developed person in this world, they, those muscles get developed uh, in the environment of a covenant. And so we found that family is this covenant environment where that is like, you know, been able to happen. Um, but the church is a, a covenant environment. You know, if your relationship with if the church is not one where you're just like, you know, coming sometimes when it's really convenient, you really feel guilty for not being there for so long or something like that. If you're there, you know, um, because it's, it's a non-negotiable act of your faith and something that you're, you realize you don't have a choice about, then that is a covenant environment where you, you, can, you can really begin to be pressed to do things that are really hard and really good and to really be changed. Being a parent has really changed me. I mean, I've changed so much since having foster kids. Chris, let me ask you about that. Being a foster parent is very challenging. There's a lot. Michelle and I are foster parents. Um, it goes a lot just to get to a place where you and, you and your, your spouse are in a position to take someone else's children into your home. Um, how has how has your faith influenced your decision to do that, 
and how has your faith interacted with the day-to-day -day covenanting of, with these children in your home, bringing them and making them part of your family? How has that sustained you guys as you, you've gone through that process? We, we were interested in fostering, you know, I mean, before we got married, we talked about having a family, and we were interested in fostering because it is a way to, um, to serve people that are really um, in need. Um, there's a, a massive fraction of foster kids that when they graduate the foster care system, they go into sex trafficking and homelessness. So this situation is very desperate. You know, this is not, this is another one of those things where what the world's doing is not working. You know, we don't necessarily think about it, but this is what's happening. So there's a need, you know, and if you take someone in your family as like your child, you have a major opportunity um, to speak into their life and to, you know, put some direction in their life and stuff like that. And um, it doesn't mean that they're going to reciprocate necessarily, but you have to leave that kind of thing to God. But it's still something that you might say, hey, like, I really want people to do it. So it's like, hey, why don't I go do it, you know? And it's easy to see how this could be something that could be like living out your faith, putting your faith to action. <clears throat> so we were interested in fostering, but it's also very serious. And I mean, I thought about what Joe had been through in fostering. I mean, it was like, it, it, was, it was a crisis situation, really, that you guys endured. I mean, um, and it's, I don't, I think that's probably like the worst horror story of fostering that I've ever heard, but it was really bad. And I really, you know, talking about servanthood is not like my life message at all because I would rather talk about God's grace and I'd rather talk about how God puts things in your heart and how we can lean on Him and, you know, how He, you know, if we have needs, whatever it may be, whether we need to, to develop our character, whether we, you know, need to actually have more fire of love in our heart, be perfected in love, whatever, I would much rather talk about, like, living by faith than, um, than living by works. It's not that what we're talking about is living by works, but it's, you know, works can actually be a fruit instead of like, I'm going to like grind my gears and make this happen. It's going to be like torturous, but I'm going to make it happen. So I dread that kind of thing. So servanthood is not my life message at all, but um, I just believed, we believed and wanted God to speak to, to us more directly about fostering for that reason and say, hey, you know, Lord, you can make it happen. We don't have to feel like this is something we have to do in order to be good Christians. So we did foster training in 2018 and then got pregnant very shortly after that. And um, with our daughter, our second child, Ellie, and um, then we weren't allowed to foster after that because it's considered a major life change and the Durham system won't let you do it. So we weren't, so we were no longer qualified to do it. Um, and time went by, we had Ellie J, she was born, and we moved, and then we get to like maybe August 2020, and we hadn't thought about it in a while at that point, but it was still something that we cared about and we were still interested in, and we would still pray about from time to time. But basically, we have a friend named Kristen who's a foster mom, so Lucy was on the phone with Kristen, and I, it was, I was not there. So I didn't hear any part of the conversation. But basically, Lucy said, hey, would you use Bears again, which is her agency, 
um, in order to foster. Are you happy with that agency? Would you use it again or would you do something else? She's like, oh man, bears sucks. I would never do it again. And uh, she's like, if it wasn't for you know, my foster child, I would quit it right now and move to a different one. Lucy said, well, which one? And she said, uh, Methodist Home for Children is awesome. She's like, I love it, Methodist Home for Children. So now that struck a bell with Lucy because during that period of time, I had been having a dream, I've been having dreams about the Methodist Church. On average, about every three months, I would have a dream about the Methodist Church. And in these dreams, there would be wonderful revivals and and, and prayer movements and things happening in these dreams. But I'd never been part of a Methodist church at all. So I was a bit mystified as to why I had dreams about the Methodist church and I had no history or connection with the Methodist church. But it happened with so much incredible regularity. Sometimes I'd have night after night of dreams. That was rare, but you know, the point is, this was like not something that just happened um, like super randomly a few times. It was something that happened on average once about every three or four months. And it happened for years and years that way. And so we're like, I know God saying something about the Methodist church to us, but like, what is it? So we just have had no idea. But basically, it wasn't, it, basically that, when, when Kristen told Lucy, I would go with the Methodist Home for Children, Lucy basically laid a fleece before God. It's like a term that people often use. It's like, give me a sign. So basically she said, uh, Lord, if this is from you and you want us to look uh, more, more deeply into Methodist Home for Children for fostering, I pray that you'll give Chris a dream tonight about the Methodist Church and that you will make it clearly connected to fostering. So she prayed that silently while she was sitting on the phone talking to Kristen, and I knew nothing about it because I was not present at all for the conversation. I didn't know that they talked about fostering or anything like that. Lucy never mentioned anything to me about it. And so we went on with a normal day that night, went to bed, and while I was uh, asleep, I had this very vivid, incredible dream. And in the dream, I remember I was in Pennsylvania, and I was in a Methodist church. And there was, it, it was kind of a dying, kind of a thin, there wasn't a lot of people there um, that would come. But then this one particular minister showed up. And when he came, he started preaching with some real power, and the place filled up, and there were a lot of people there. And in my dream, I remember suddenly uh, I saw him at the front and he had all these young boys in, standing up in the front with him. And he was like basically walking down a line of them. So he would like lay a hand on one of them and he would sing, Mama, I'm coming home! Just like that. <laughs> and... Um, that's what he would sing, and when he sang it over them, they would, one by one, he put his hand on their head and sing it, and they would fall down in the floor and have this very, like, ecstatic experience of being touched by the Holy Spirit in my dream. This was what was happening. And then I thought, why is this guy singing a Queen song? But it turns out it's an Ozzy Osbourne song. I didn't know that. Anyways, in the, in the real world, it's really an Ozzy Osbourne song. Anyways, um... And then after he's laying his head on, hands on their heads and they're falling on the floor, um, I saw that Lucy and I were sitting in the front row and there were a host of children that were sitting, uh, that were sitting in our laps and standing really close to us. And they were with us. And then I woke up and I immediately thought, I've got to tell somebody about that dream. And I always back then would write my dreams down, always, almost always. And for some reason, I didn't write that one down. 
I just was like, there's no need to write it down. I'm not going to forget it. So I went back to sleep. And um, God speaks to people through dreams in case you don't read the Bible. Let me just give you a little, you know, clue in there. Um, so, so I went back to sleep. But then I woke up later. Slept really late. It was great. Don't do that anymore. Malachi was getting up at like 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock those days. Those were the old days. And um, Lucy looked over at me and she said, she, she said, so, did you have any dreams? And I said, oh, yeah. And then she said, what did you dream about? I said, I had a dream about the Methodist church. I didn't say anything more than that. She just, from that, she launched and told me the whole story about Kristen being on the phone and how she'd ask God to give me a dream about the Methodist church, make it about foster, clearly connected to fostering. I had not told her what happened in my dream yet. But as she's telling me that, I'm thinking about the children and God touching them. And the whole point, the whole goal of foster care is to reunite children with their family. So this mama, I'm coming home thing was kind of a big deal. So I'm, as she's telling me this, it's like this pit opening in my stomach. It's like, we don't have a choice in this. God is telling us to do it. We have to do it. And um, I was like, you're not going to believe it when I tell you what happened in my dream. So... That is why we decided, I mean, that's how we really, that was instrumental. That was like the, you know, the flint strikes the steel and there's an ignition and the thing takes off. Uh, that dream was like a saying, okay, God's, it's God's, all systems are go. We're going to start. So then we started getting things in order to do foster licensing and we became licensed and we became foster parents last May, officially. Um, and that whole experience has totally sustained us because being able to fall back on this, like we are, we are supposed to be doing this. God told us to do this. This is, you know, not an option. This is his will. He's with us. That has sustained us through some episodes that have been otherwise maybe like, you know, maybe it's time for these kids to be with some other new foster parents, you know. But I kind of, it's hard for them to wear out their welcome or to wear us out when we're falling back on this word from God that that's a major plumb line in our lives that is like a platform that's empowering us to do this and to know that we're doing the right thing by doing it. So we can have that kind of relationship with God. And um, so that's been, you know, critical. I'm going to have you pray over everybody just for a minute. You good with that? Yeah, I'd love to. If you guys would love to hear some more of Chris's story tonight, and you have a few minutes afterwards, please stick around and ask him questions in more depth about it. Um, fostering's tough. It's hard. It's it, it's a but it's a critically important way to serve. Serving's hard. Serving's going to cost you something, right? It is. Um, but there's so many needs out there that that maybe your way of serving is not taking a child into your home. Maybe there's something else for you. And I want you to take some time to think about that. God, you prepared works, as Ephesians tells us, beforehand for us to walk in. He prepared you and Lucy, Chris, to, for these two particular boys to come and be a part of your family and your household. There are people I would bet money on tonight that are on this campus that God has for you to make a difference and serve them in their lives. Maybe it's somebody in your family even that's not here. There's a whole range of things out there, people that God wants to touch, and He wants to do it through all of us.
Not just one person, not just the lead person, not the person that has talents and skills. Everybody. Everybody. In fact, there's people that you can serve and you can touch that nobody else can. Only you. Only you. And Chris, if you take a moment and pray over them, um, that's what I'd like you to pray for them. That God, the Holy Spirit, would show each of us. Might not know it tonight. Maybe it's tomorrow walking across the pit. Um, Maybe it's somebody in our dorm that we've never met before. Um, But I want you to pray over us tonight and ask God to reveal to us people that we can serve, that maybe we're not yet aware of, that, um, that are ordained and prepared beforehand for us to walk in. today's message. For more information about our ministry, visit us on the web at www.xa-unc.com.